Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Barbara Kay and I talk about transgender research, free speech, and academic inquiry. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Great to have you tuned into Canada's most irreverent talk show. Of course, irreverent is very similar to irrelevant. So I had someone on YouTube last week ask me if I was calling myself Canada's most irrelevant talk show. No, a couple of letters off, but very important letters. That's a different show. I won't give you suggestions, but there are several shows that might fit the bill of being Canada's most irrelevant. In any case, it's good to have you tuned into the show today. I want to talk about free speech in the context of a debate that happened, or not even a debate, an event that happened at McGill University a couple of weeks ago. And the debate was really around whether this event should be allowed to happen, as is so often the case when it comes to any sort of remotely contentious subject matter in 2020. I mean, this has been going on since 2019, 2018, 2017, and and so on and so forth back. But the Dialogue in this case was going to be a talk by Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who's a celebrated and renowned researcher, someone who, despite being accused of conversion therapy, is actually a researcher who advocates a wait-and-see approach before going through irreparable procedures to affirm a transgender person's believed gender. And this is just a a very condensed way of describing a backstory that I know we'll talk to Barbara Kay about in just a moment. But Kenneth Zucker was going to be speaking at McGill University. Trans activists were not happy about this talk, but it didn't get shut down. And I think there's a lesson in this that we can learn a bit about. Barbara Kay covered it through the planning process and also throughout the event itself and and wrote a piece in the Post Millennial about it. But the hopefulness, I guess, for this year and what it may bring to the cancel culture wars came in a column she wrote that we'll talk about momentarily. That is, will 2020 be the year of reason in the cancel culture wars? Author and columnist Barbara Kay joins me on the line now. Barbara, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Good to be here. Now, I thought this was a fantastic piece for a couple of reasons. I I think, number one, you went through the subject matter of Ken Zucker and free speech and the importance of of having a a dialogue on gender, but you also brought the rare dose of good news on these issues that we don't often hear about in this day and age. And I was wondering if you could tell me why this story is one that gave you a little bit of hope and, and a little bit of optimism. Well, uh, the the good news aspect of it was very welcomed. My editor was extremely pleased. He was he he thought at first, oh no, this is going to be just you know another cancel culture piece, and it was be so depressing. The good news was that uh, the people in charge of this uh, event, and this is this is we're talking now about Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who is a leading international expert on gender dysphoria, and until a few years ago, uh, he had been a long time director of the gender identity clinic at uh, CAMH in in Toronto. Uh, And then um, his approach to treating children with gender dysphoria uh, has now become a subject of controversy uh, in the trans community because he treats children holistically. He calls his approach uh, developmentally informed therapy or developmentally informed psychotherapy, 
And that means when a child presents as gender dysphoric, uh, he doesn't just say, uh, okay, you're a boy or you're a girl. He says, well, let's talk about um, what life is like for you otherwise. Let's talk about your family dynamics. Talk about, uh, you know, have you had previous uh, referrals for anxiety or depression? Or, you know, he, he treats the whole child. And very often it turns out that gender dysphoria is not the child's primary problem. Uh, so he, because many of his patients did end up uh, returning to their natal sex as their preferred identification, um, he became known as somebody who was uh, uh, treating children with what is falsely called conversion therapy. Uh, uh, so they came after him. He got fired from CAMH, and uh, ever since, he's been a sort of focal point for controversy, uh, even though his research is probably the most cited of anywhere, you know, anyone in the world. He's a scientist, a researcher, a clinician. So that's the background on Dr. Zucker and um, a, a, a professor in the psychiatry department wanted to invite him to speak and immediately and, of course, knew. And this is at McGill University. Sorry, at McGill University, um, and there is um, they have subdivisions in the psychiatry department. Uh, this is uh, one of the subdivisions. The head of the uh, division is a pr Professor Samuel Vicier, and he believes that Dr. Zucker's research is well worth sharing, but he also knew it would be controversial. So the reason it didn't blow up, I think, is that Dr. Vi uh, Professor Vicier made a concerted effort to reach out to uh, stakeholder groups in the trans community like Queer McGill and other, uh, other activist groups uh, who are LGBT allies. And he, uh, he had conversations with them. He posted on their Facebook pages. He said this is going to be, you know, uh, very, it's about research we invite everybody to come and participate. It's going to be a very safe and open environment. We're going to have an extended Q&A. I mean, he really reached out. And as a result, although there was pushback and there was resistance to it, uh, it took the form of, you know, sending letters to the administration. We're not happy about this. We wish it would be canceled. But, you know, nobody took to the streets or um, nobody threatened to uh to ring alarms or to, to, to have a mass protest. So it did go forward. I was there. There were no protesters. Uh, people from the LGBT community did come. Uh, people, researchers who actually opposed Dr. Zucker's approach did come. Uh, I would say it was an extremely successful evening uh, and it did have an extended q and I did actually write I did a big write-up of it for the post-millennial, a 3,000-word write-up of it um, following the event. And, uh, all right, so it was hopeful in, in, in the respect that something very controversial did go forward and he was not deplatformed. The part that, that I... you mentioned in the column that I, I thought was really disheartening, and I understood it entirely and would view it the same way, is that when you first receive this invitation, you put it in your calendar with a question mark. So right out yeah. of the gate, no other information. The expectation is 
there's a good chance this isn't going to happen. And I don't know when it became that that was the more likely presumption, but but it has happened within the last decade, certainly. And, you know, I would say on the flip side of that, it used to be that the culture warrior in me would almost welcome things getting shut down years ago because I thought, okay, it's proving the point. That's long past now. I'm at the point and have been for quite a while where I want to have the dialogues, I want to have the debates, and it, it gets very tiring. The fire alarm routine, the let's cancel it, the deplatform, it gets very tiring. And this was one where I would have been right in alignment with you that, oh, there's no way this is going to happen. Well, I, I was pleased, very pleased to be proven wrong on this. And I'm, by the way, I, I'm entirely uh, aligned with you uh, in that a couple of years ago, too. I was much more warriorish about it. And now I'm just plain discouraged and depressed about it. Uh, so this really was a bright light. But just as the fact that it went forward was good news, I have to say that there's a little bad news attached to it in one sense, and that is that the stakeholder groups that were most actively uh, against this going forward, um, I think they didn't really have time to gather their, um, how shall I say, uh, to mount what would be uh, a really organized uh Protest, and I don't mean protest in the sense of uh, fire alarms. I mean they I, I, their immediate their response was, okay, I guess this is going forward. The administration absolutely didn't have any qualms about it at all. I mean, after all, look, we're talking about we're talking about a very highly accredited uh, person in the yeah. field yeah. who's world famous. You, you can't you can't come and say, well, this is some flake, or this this is a guy who's known to hate. Trans people, you can't do any of that. You, he's he's an honest, objective researcher who has had success clinically uh, in dealing with with uh, gender dysphoric children. He has great compassion. He he does endorse uh, transitioning um, if it's clear after going through a period of therapy that this is the right thing for that person. Uh, so it's not like he's he's um, some kind of a, a hate figure. Not at all. So it did go forward. But um, I have seen correspondence between the, some of these groups and Professor Vicier and with the university. And my impression is that they are going to, next time this comes up, that there will be some, some protocol in place that will insist on representation from the trans community. They have a, a, a kind of mantra, nothing about us without us. In other words, nobody should be allowed to present um, a lecture or a talk without input or without actual representation uh, during the program, as if there was always going to be two sides and one is going to be anti-trans and one is going to be pro-trans, as if every single... Um, uh, academic presentation was in fact uh, assumed to be a political statement. Uh, this I find very unfortunate because um, if if you must, if, if every single um, uh, psychological difficulty or 
you know, disorder or this form of dysphoria uh, or anything that is <clears throat> on the spectrum of, of um, what we would think of as disorders. Uh, but if you prefer a better term, then fine. But if every time somebody, an academic in the field is going to make a presentation um, and is going to need input from that group, that, that gets quite weird. It's not, that's not scientific um, because that, that is actually uh, saying, well, science is so politicized. And I'm not saying that science never has been politicized. It often, one of the points that one of the um, people made in the Q&A was science has always been tinged with social values. And that is true. Uh, the reason that it took a very long time for homosexuality to be removed from the list of pathologies uh, is because of a social value, not a medical, not a medical assessment. Yeah. Now, I would take from that that it makes it all the more important to hear from different perspectives. And some people would, in response to that, instead say, uh, you know what, we shouldn't hear <laughs> from these different perspectives. Well, no, but they're I think what they they would they would they're more moderate than that. And I think they would what what they would say is, well, Yes, have your invite your scientists, but you're not that person should not have the whole floor. They shouldn't have the whole evening to themselves. Uh, a question and answer period is not sufficient um, to uh, give balance to the evening. So if you're going to plan something in the future, I think we're going to have a protocol in place that, you know, but yeah, I had a discussion with Dr. Zucker about this after the presentation and, and everything was finished and I, I walked down the hill with him from the neuro, the Montreal Neurological Institute where it had taken place. And we were walking down to Sherbrooke. He had to catch a plane. And I was like, well, <clears throat> if that were the case, that every single uh, condition that, that, that was being discussed by a researcher had to have representation from the actual group, then you couldn't get anybody giving a presentation, say, on uh, autism spectrum disorder unless you had a group of autistic people there or a representation from the autistic community, although there is no such thing. And I, I don't think there really is such a thing as a trans community. There's a, a community of trans activists, uh, mm. but normal, ordinary transgender people, they, they live their lives. They don't spend their 90% of their time meeting, uh, you know, committee meetings and, and, and uh, hanging out um, in, 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 you know, neighborhood meeting places to discuss, you know, trans issues. They just live. Yeah, they live well, their that's, I mean, that's the problem with any of these identity politics discussions is that very often you have an entire identity group that's co-opted by an organization or a network of activists that doesn't necessarily speak for the average person in that group, whether it's a racial group, a religious group, a trans group, sexual orientation, whatever the case may be. And, yeah. you know, the problem if you're going to demand that representation there is that you can keep drilling down further and further and further. And eventually you have so many different groups and cross groups and concurrent groups. You know, we need a black person there. We need an Asian person there. We need a half black, half Asian person. There. I mean, no matter how far you go, you're never going to be able to meet that if you decide to go down that road. And I, I see that's the logical extension of well, that that's, way and, of thinking. And in this particular case, uh, if you're talking about trans activist groups, uh, they themselves are not pleased to give 
public forum space to detransitioners yes. uh, because that 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 doesn't fit their narrative. Uh, so this idea that that uh, when you talk about the human condition, when you talk about varieties of um, uh, aberrations from the norm, then members of that group must be represented. This this sort of turns academic research onto, I mean, academic, academic research is not supposed to be fighting political battles all the time or, or any of the time. Uh, they're supposed to present their research and they should be given space for that. Um, in the, in the Q and A, by the way, one of the first speakers was a young woman who had transitioned and who regretted. Uh, so she was a detransitioner hmm. who had stopped taking testosterone and who made a case for more therapeutic intervention before allowing transition uh, or at least hormonal transition. And she said... And that, that is the Zucker approach, is it not? Exactly. So she was actually there to speak up on behalf of a more uh, holistic approach. And uh, immediately, uh, in response to that uh, statement... Somebody across the room, it was a horseshoe arrangement, you know, like lecture halls are uh, in, in uh, institutions like this. And immediately uh, a trans man, a young trans man across the hall who, you know, was obviously a little bit agitated by uh, the detransitioner uh, speaking their truth. Um, he said, because the tra detransitioner had said I was I was getting quite suicidal because of I had other issues I had depression and anxiety. Yeah. So this trans man said, "Well, I was suicidal because I needed to transition, and uh, it was a good thing I did." So you had the two opposite. But what I liked was the fact both had their say. Everybody listened very respectfully to both of them, and my first response to that mentally was to say. Well, people say that it's, they feel unsafe uh, when they hear uh, views that they disagree with or that 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 um, they find offensive. Well, this this trans man, I think, found what the detransitioner young woman said. I don't know about offensive, but he found it agitating. He was flushed. He was he was, you know, wanted to speak his his own truth, which he did. And everybody listened to him. Very respectfully, there was no feeling that anybody felt unsafe or that you know it was it was a very civil uh, and very comfortable um, evening for anybody who wanted to say anything. And I said to myself, "Well, look, um, this whole idea that you can't be safe uh, hearing from somebody whose opinion makes you uncomfortable." Uh, is ridiculous because I'm looking at people doing exactly that and uh, they're just going to have had their say uh, at a forum in which this very necessary approach uh, has to be discussed openly. And nobody is stopping um, people who buy into the affirmation, the immediate affirmation approach from holding their seminars and their lectures uh, without input from the Dr. Zuckers and, and people who agree with him. Um, so it seems very unfair to me that they should be, uh, and I'm anticipating now, I don't know what's going to happen at McGill, 
I just have this strong feeling uh, that the next step after this will be to insert protocols that may preclude Dr. Zucker having a repeat performance there um, or anyone else who does not uh, espouse the correct political view. But I should say also that when we were walking down the hill and I we were talking about his approach and he was telling me about some of his interesting cases, obviously not by name, um, and I, you know, he treats children age three to 12. And I said, so I'm sure you keep the data on this. I said, I, I'm curious to know uh, what percentage of your clients or your patients um, end up after therapy uh, reverting to or feeling comfortable in their natal sex. And he, without a beat being skipped, said 88%. Wow. And I was like, wow. And that was almost the last exchange we had before he had to grab a, a cab, you know, to, to get back to Toronto. And I was like, I, I, my, my reaction was, I guess it's just as well this didn't come up in the Q&A because I think that would have caused a great deal of consternation and we couldn't have left it at that. I think that saying that would have aroused uh, so much uh, intense discussion that that should be for another time uh, because he was there to discuss his research, not to discuss his clinical practice. So it was just as well. It didn't come up, but I did include that in my post-millennial piece mm. and it's, it's getting, you know, it's getting a lot of Twitter play. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting here is there's that age old saying the fact that you can't choose your facts like you can choose your opinions applies here. He can share that, and ultimately people are going to try to shoehorn it into their political ideology if they don't like it and say, well, this just reinforces that he's doing conversion therapy and all of these other things, which we know is not true. But the fact that this dialogue happened, the fact that people that were very rattled by what the other had to say were able to come together, both share in an open environment, you still have this concern that McGill would potentially put up roadblocks or activists would put up roadblocks there. Whereas well, I, I, I would I, try I, to be an optimist here has, and say, how could we replicate this? How could we, was there a lesson to take out of this or a roadmap to take out of this uh, to basically make it so something like this could go on in the future? Or do you think it will just be an anomaly when all is said and done? I don't know. And I, I the only reason I say I'm, I'm concerned that, that further, events of this type might be precluded is because I, I have seen evidence um, that certain allies of the trans movement, uh, the, you know, uh, have said uh, quite openly to Professor Vicier, uh, we're, no, we're not happy um, and we have to, we have to work out uh, I don't know if they use the word protocols, but we we have to work out some kind of a, you know, uh, um, a plan d'action or whatever you want uh, to make sure that uh, trans. He didn't use the word activists, the one I'm thinking of, uh, that that people in the trans community, whatever, feel represented, feel adequately represented if this is going to go forward again. So I, I think this this kind of. Um, uh, credo that you can't talk about gender dysphoria without 
representation from the community who have their own uh, quite politicized idea because it's not scientifically based. The, you know, these are their claims that affirmation is the necessary um, approach to dealing with gender dysphoric children. And, and I say children advisedly because if you're dealing with gender dysphoric adults, I think we're talking about a whole other, you know, yeah. uh, ball game here. So we're, we're mainly concerned with children. So this idea that if you don't affirm, and especially adolescents, we talked a lot, uh, one of the hot buttons in this field is what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, a term that trans activists do not like. Uh, I guess they would prefer late onset uh, you know, Dr. Zucker doesn't care what it's called. He, he's happy to call it late onset, I think. Uh, but this is a, an area of concern because the numbers are escalating rapidly. And there is evidence to suggest that it is something like a social contagion rather than based in um, I'm in the wrong body kind of thing. Uh, so this instant affirmation, which is what, you know, you can get you can get hormone blockers prescribed uh, after a 15-minute interview by some endocrinologists um, in this country. And Dr. Zucker happened to mention, he's done a lot of collaboration with uh, scientists in the Netherlands on this issue, and they're, they're very deep into this issue. Uh, they've done many studies. And um, in, in the Netherlands, for example, if you're referred to a clinic for gender dysphoria, uh, they take quite a long time before you're actually prescribed. It can be up to 18 months before you actually get prescribed uh, hormones. And during that time, you have plenty of time to uh, work through whatever other issues are, are on your mind with a therapist. And, and so it's just not that instant affirmation here. It, it is pretty instant. Um, and that that is really what it boils down to, the dissension between people like Dr. Zucker and people who our allies of Dr. Zucker's approach, like me and you, I guess, uh, all we're asking for, we're not saying there's no such thing as gender dysphoria. We're not saying that um, people with it should not have the right to have support um, and treatment. Uh, we're not even saying that they shouldn't have the right to go on hormone blockers. All we're saying is uh, that children should not be rushed into this, um, that instant affirmation is not the way to go. It's it's not, it's not uh, what I would call a good quality care, and uh, it's not ethical. So that's all he's saying. That's all allies of his approach are saying. Um, and yet we're being told by trans activists that we're the ones that are um, putting impediments in the way of people that, that uh, need compassion, need support, uh, and all the rest. But I don't. I don't say uh, that we are lacking compassion. I, I think that one has to put prudence and 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 medical caution ahead of um, uh, what they call compassion, which which many of us call negligence. It seems as though Barbara, you're relying heavily on the scientific arguments for what uh, Zucker and his peers are putting putting forward here, but I wonder if that misses 
the the point that's more important, rather, if that's more about the free speech side of this and the academic inquiry side of this, because there's a possibility that the activists are wrong, there's a possibility that Zucker is wrong, there's a possibility that anyone positing a, a scientific theory is wrong. My belief, and I, I know this is yours from other conversation we've uh, other conversations we've had, is that you have to put all of these ideas forward to decide and to figure out and and to have those perspectives, and that's why that moment that you shared of the detransitioning woman speaking up and the person who did transition speaking up is important. I mean, one of them says detransitioning helped her. The other one says transitioning helped him. These two are compatible with one one another and they're compatible with what Zucker says. So I wonder, though, if the scientific argument gets too in the weeds for people because when Zucker mentions that 88% statistic, for example, instead of the fundamental question of does he have a right to say that, I fear that that will open the door to people starting to uh, pounce on him even more and say, no, 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 he's wrong, and that's why we can't have him speak. Well, I think what people who are against his approach would say is, well, he can say what he wants about them ending up being comfortable, but basically he's talked them out of you know, uh, yeah. something that they need. And uh, they and, and they would say, well, uh, either the people coming to him are not really gender dysphoric. That's that's one of their approaches. Uh, like people that detect transition, they'll often say, oh, but they weren't really gender. Yeah, they dysphoric. they, they yeah, weren't but, trans in the first place, so they don't count. Yeah, so it's it's a very circular argument. You know, if someone says they are trans, oh yes, affirm immediately. But then ten years later, when they've been on testosterone and everything else for all those years, and they say no. I should not have been affirmed. Uh, they would say, well, you, you know, that's that's uh, then you weren't really trans and nothing to do with with us. You know, that's that's not on us, but it is on them, because uh, since you don't know and we do know study after study after study, I mean, we have to rely on uh, science at some point. And if study mm-hmm. after study in, in many different countries uh, all come to the same conclusion that after puberty, children who are presenting as gender dysphoric, Uh, before puberty, end up comfortable being, uh, you know, uh, identifying with their biological sex, Uh, we have to pay attention to that. And we have to assume these are good faith. Uh, This is good faith research. It's replicated. And that's part of the scientific method is replication, replication. Whereas uh, many of the theories, the gender fluidity uh, theories are based entirely in theory. They admit that. Um, there's no scientific studies proving that anyone is, you know, this idea that gender fluidity, all, all it is, is observation and, and surmises and assumptions and, uh, for, for sure. And, and I, and I, I don't dispute that. I, I guess the point th- that I am more unsettled by and in, in what these activists do is that they don't care about the science and they don't care about the free speech side of it. And I guess it's a matter of which way is a more compelling uh, direction or which way gets you more likely to having that dialogue. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that yet. Well, I mean, I think one of the, uh, I think I think one protocol or one uh, guideline for university administrations should be, uh, look, uh, if somebody is accredited in a, in a, uh, in a real discipline. I mean, psychiatry, you can say, oh, all psychiatry is bunk. But the fact is, uh, these are actual departments. There is actual literature uh, and, and and the scientific method is used for, for a lot of their work. Um, so if somebody is highly accredited, 
He is the editor-in-chief of the um, Archives of Sexual Behavior, which is the preeminent journal, peer-reviewing journal in his field. So if somebody is that accredited, you cannot say that he does not have the right to make a presentation um, via a department at a regular university yeah. like McGill you, on the grounds that you are not happy with uh, his approach or his his uh, um, uh, his brand. Of, and, and if you're uh, not having a, have your own symposium, have exactly. your own voices. I mean, this is the problem own. is that no one is saying they can't be heard. And this is what makes me want to pull my hair out over this dialogue That's when right. it happens, if you can even call it that, is that someone else speaking does not threaten your right to speak. Exactly. And, and, and of course, there are there is the argument that uh, people have a right to hear what he has yes. to say. So, uh, yes, have your own symposium, have your own conference, have your own whatever you want. Uh, you know, there nobody is stopping the other side. Nobody is deplatforming anybody on the other side. Nobody is uh, asking them to do anything except stop De stop canceling or stop trying to cancel those whose attitude or whose approach or perspective uh, they don't like. It's and and universities have to back them up. In this case, the administration wasn't even didn't even consider for one second uh, canceling, even though they received numerous um, demands for it. And I did. I was in touch with the provost and and asked if it had been a consideration and she said absolutely not uh so i think that was one of the reasons why there was no serious protest because the the administration hadn't even wavered for a second on it um so we'll see i'd love to see i'd love to see this be a paradigm for uh the next time yeah and you know what i'm i'm very grateful that you saw this through through the planning process and, and through the the event itself for two reasons number one I, I think there's an important dialogue that has been put forward by dr zucker but i also think more poignantly the process is the punishment when it comes to shutting people down in a lot of cases whether it's security fees that are made just to shut down the event or whether it's all of these groups that have a say in trying to dilute or, or ultimately get rid of it and for this one the process seemed to be the savior of it it was the process that showed dialogue is important and the process that ultimately was successful getting an event forward so whether it can be replicated in the same way that the scientific method uh, requires as far as doing this event in, in other forms i think it's important that it happened and important that people saw that it happened and that no one was unsafe that no one was harmed no one was irreparably damaged by words in an academic forum Absolutely. I, 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 I do agree with you. When you say the process is the punishment, I should say uh, that I do think uh, Professor Vissier, who organized this, uh, was pretty courageous because uh, he was at the center of the controversy. Uh, he was the one that took all the flack. It occupied his time, I would say, Days and days uh, were just occupied with responding to, um, you know, hostile 
letters and and emails and he tried his his language was so conciliatory he made such a, a passionate uh, beautiful introduction to the event uh, in which he made a plea for reconciliation uh, between the two sides and um you know this this idea of of goodwill and good faith it was a very beautiful i, I included several paragraphs of his introductory remarks in my post millennial piece because i thought i've never seen anyone so um so uh, idealistically uh and trying so hard to bring two sides of a, of of a basically a political situation together uh he did not get any credit for it i don't think from you know any official credit for that but i'm giving him credit for <laughs> yeah that. well he gets it from me as well so he's getting his due here it's yeah. not a great honor to get your due on the andrew lawton show but we'll uh, we'll do what we can barbara k national post columnist joining me on the line now barbara thank you so much for doing this and also for coming on today really appreciate it, it my pleasure andrew thanks for having me you know, it's interesting. When I invited Barbara, I wanted this event to basically serve a, as the launching point for a broader discussion about free speech. And it ended up going, as live uh, programming does, in a bit of a different direction. We were spoke, speaking more about the specific event and about gender identity and all of these things. But I still think that's an important dialogue to have. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it's not a dialogue that people want to entertain. And notwithstanding this McGill event, which, by the way, they did try to shut down, when Zucker was in a, a documentary, a BBC documentary that looked at the pro and anti-transitioning arguments, and he was not an anti-transitioner, by the way, that documentary has become so controversial that even CBC was subjected to calls for boycotts. I mean, people can boycott CBC, but boycotts for being too transphobic for supposedly airing or was were planning to air the documentary, and I don't even think it ever happened. So the idea that you can't even have a discussion about research with a researcher without going down this road into identity politics is absolutely insane. So like I said, we didn't speak as much on the broader uh, umbrella of free speech. We focused on this event, but also I think in doing so illuminated perhaps a bit of hopefulness on the horizon, but also what the stakes are when it comes to trying to have discussions in an academic context or any other context. So my thanks to Barbara Kay for coming on. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show here. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.